Hi everyone, this is Megan Burke, founder of Therapy Insights and your host of the Therapy Insights podcast, where we talk about interdisciplinary issues related to speech, occupational, and physical therapy. I once worked with a patient who had an elective hip surgery, and a few days into their rehab stay, I got speech orders for a cognitive eval um, because the patient couldn't remember any of their hip precautions. And what struck me was that the person was able to recall absolutely everything about their life up and until the surgery. And each day that I saw them, we had to review why they were in the facility. And each day it was a shock to them. And years later, I saw the same patient at another facility wandering the halls of a long-term care memory unit. Um, They had never recovered. And this is when I learned about the term post-operative cognitive dysfunction, or POCD. This term has been used to describe the condition where post-operative delirium never resolves. And as a speech therapist, and also a human who has and likely will undergo future sedation in my life, I'm intrigued about why this happens and what we can do about it. And for any therapists who are listening to this episode to learn all of the therapy tips and tricks to treat this condition, you might want to adjust your expectations um, because there is no cure for POCD. Once these people land on our caseload, it's our job to ensure that they have as much independence as possible and as much quality of life as possible within the constraints of a neurocognitive impairment that likely will not resolve. And this is why I'm really interested in talking about how we as therapists can play a role in the interdisciplinary team before POCD occurs. So everyone from the patient and their family to the dietitian to the anesthesiologist to the physician and everyone on the team is better prepared to handle these complex and unfortunate circumstances when they do happen. And that's exactly what we talk about today with Dr. Syed Safavinia. Dr. Safavinia is a neuroanesthesiologist and physician scientist at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City. He has a PhD in systems neuroscience from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where his thesis work centered on understanding how the nervous system coordinates multi-muscle activations necessary for balance control. As an anesthesiologist, Dr. Safavinia is interested in using non-invasive neuromonitoring techniques to identify and mitigate neurocognitive insults during surgery and anesthesia. To this end, his research focuses on understanding the neural mechanisms underlying altered conscious states, including post-operative delirium and delayed recovery of consciousness seen in COVID-19 critical illness. Um, We've created a free two-page PDF handout of the information presented in this podcast, um, as well as additional information from Dr. Safavini's publications, including a visual of the new terms that are discussed, as well as the ICD-10 codes and a copy of the proposed brain enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS protocol that Dr. Safavini refers to in our discussion. It's a really great resource to share with your interdisciplinary team. And you can find this by going to therapyinsights.com and clicking on free downloads or going to the podcast page and finding the show notes at therapyinsights.com. And with that, we'll dive into our conversation. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I'm super excited because this is a topic that I don't know a lot about and you know a lot about. And I got some really great feedback um, about the topic from therapists. Just they have a lot of the same questions that I have. So I'm just here to learn and ask stupid questions and maybe like use the wrong terms or the wrong words. And you can correct me at any point. Um, but yeah, I just so everyone who's tuning into this knows we're talking about post-operative cognitive dysfunction or POCD, not to be confused with COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, And the reason I'm so interested in this topic is because like as a speech therapist, 
I've seen people who like maybe go in for some kind of an elective surgery and then they end up in inpatient rehab or skilled nursing for therapy, usually like orthopedic therapy with an OT and PT. But then like after a while, people are thinking that there's something wrong with this person's cognition. And so OT or speech will do some sort of cognitive eval. And then there's this realization that something happened after the surgery that changed their cognitive skills. But what's odd about it right now is like post-operative cognitive dysfunction is not, there's no ICD code for it, I don't think. And technically, in order to actually diagnose it, you have to have testing done before the sedation and after, which makes it tricky. And so it's like this weird thing that happens that I don't know that therapists feel really comfortable treating. (laughs) And we don't really know, like, why it happens. People like you do, but a lot of people like me don't. And so um, I'm looking, I have your paper printed out. I will say that I read it. I don't know that I fully understood all of it, but a lot of the work that you've done has been around neuroinflammation of the central nervous system and trying to understand POCD from that lens. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah? Sounds great. Um, I think that (laughs) I may only fail you and uh, give you vague (laughs) answers to all of your questions and maybe even not give answers. Uh, I feel like I am in a position to really disappoint at the moment, but, uh, and, and that's really because as you well describe it, I mean, we don't know much about it. Why, uh, and when I say it, I'm talking right now about post-operative cognitive dysfunction. However, defining post-operative cognitive dysfunction is a problem right now. And in fact, we're actually moving to a different nomenclature that will be better diagnosable uh, in concert with DSM-5 criteria, which will also Ooh. give a ICD-10 available code and at least put these uh, disorders into a an operative context, let's say. But, you know, as you say it, or and as you have assessed it right now, you know, POCD as that entity is not really well understood. It's only identified in relation to a surgery, as you've described. Once it falls in the hands of someone who is an interested party of somebody's cognition, As you said, the diagnosis itself, there's no gold standard for the diagnosis. It can be done in many different ways. And a lot of the research that we have is based on all of these different diagnostic criteria. So it's even difficult for a person to put it all together and say, well, what what are the risk factors for this entity if we're not even assessing the entity in the same way? And Mm -hmm. the one that I haven't described, which, which you sort of also got at with a little bit was like, you get these people after a surgical event and now there's concern for their cognition, but where was their baseline cognition in the first place? And oftentimes these people don't have baselines that you can even attach anything to. So it's even, I imagine harder from the uh, perspective of the therapist to know, well, to what end am I trying to diagnose something that I don't know much about, that I can't really correct and, you know, to, to what functional status. So because of all of that, we're in the middle of an overhaul. Uh, on the entity itself of uh, of POCD. And we're actually moving toward a umbrella term called perioperative neurocognitive disorder or uh, PND. And um, Megan, as, as you showed me that one paper um, from, I think that's 2019, I just put out another paper on perioperative neurocognitive disorder, similar to the one that you had seen. Um, it's in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, and I'm happy to give that to you, uh, you know, if, if you can't access it. But it, I think, will... Um, I think it starts to address some of these questions that you have because that paper itself was like, here's the state of the the literature. And I think this is a little bit more actionable and what we intend to do as we continue to move through and sift through the data that we have. So essentially, you know, defining POCD has been difficult. It's been broadly defined. It could encompass any residual cognitive impairment after hospital discharge to up until seven and a half years after surgery that's been reported into the literature. That's not very helpful for, you know, a therapist or for any clinician really that wants to take care of his patient. Uh, It also doesn't take into account these standardized or validated baseline measurements 
which you know have been in the past defined uh, been defined as a decline in a MOCA score from you know 0.1 to 0.2. Whether or not 0.1 is before surgery, it could be a decline in a mini mental status exam. It's been defined as a combination of either of those with other neurocognitive tests like a digit span test or a uh, single digit modalities test, the trail making test, a whole bunch of different neuro uh, uh, psychological assessments. But again, there's no sort of encapsulatory uh, set of tests or one test that says, okay, this then can supply a diagnosis of POCD. So what we're doing now to kind of relieve some of these problems is switching to this uh, entity of perioperative neurocognitive disorder. And this means that, well, this just this means, uh, this is aligned with DSM-5 criteria. And so it, it encompasses a modest decline in cognition, which is defined on at least one cognitive domain, does not specify which cognitive domain it has to be, uh, and there should also be a subjective deficit that is observed or felt by the patient. So either expressed by the patient or family or observed by a clinician. You then have to have an evaluation of a patient's IEDL, so their instrumental activities of daily living, to classify severity of this change in cognition. And lastly, uh, as is with a lot of DSM-5 criteria, it can't be explained by a medical condition like Alzheimer's disease or a prior stroke or some sort of psychiatric condition. And so in this framework, POCD actually becomes three separate entities. So depending on how it is defined, and I go through all this because the literature will change and I think it will really affect what we will learn about the process and how we think it unfolds. But essentially, uh, from discharge until 30 days after discharge, we are now calling POCD delayed neurocognitive recovery, or DNCR. It would be a lowercase d and then capital NCR. From 30 days to a year, we now call this mild or major uh, neurocognitive disorder with a postoperative identifier. And I think that partly gets to your ICD-10 code question. This will become the standard, uh, which, you know, mild and major neurocognitive disorder is already on the DSM-5 criteria or on the DSM-5 handbook. And so you can now attach this with a post-operative modifier from 30 days to a year. And then after a year, it no longer has that post-operative designation and is just considered mild or major neurocognitive disorder. The other thing to note with this new definition is that it does necessitate some sort of neurocognitive battery, though it's still not standardized. And that will further necessitate several cognitive uh, testing of several cognitive domains at repeated intervals. So this kind of gets into the starting to establish baselines for patients that we find or we fear might be vulnerable uh, from this into you know, a, an establishment of their baseline cognitive status and how this might play over time. Okay, well, you're already not disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, that's major. Um, can we, I didn't get to hear your story. Yeah, so and there's a lot to unpack, so I'm happy to know whatever order you want. <laughs> yeah, we, we went into the topic, and you've already, like, given me a whole bunch of information that I didn't even know about, so that's amazing. But how did you get to the point where this is what this is your life's work? Like, how did you get into this field of medicine? And why are you passionate about this particular area? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I found it very circuitously, as I think most people find, you know, what they want to do fairly circuitous. But essentially, I was uh, very interested in how originally in my in my phd thesis i was very interested in how the brain can take lots of information and either distill it down into small amounts of information that are usable uh, and vice versa how we take small amounts of information and go into uh into the complexity that we see in everyday life i started out with a background in music i was a composition uh student before i i went into uh, wow. my md and my MD phd and originally i wanted to study music cognition and the idea of how we take all variability in sound and pitch and timing and rhythm and make these 
low dimensional salient constructs in the brain. You know, you're when when you're listening to a piece of music, you don't you're not thinking on the thirty thousand variable level. You're usually thinking on a more uh, low dimensional level. What does this piece mean to me? What does this song mean? How do I feel? What are my emotions from all of this? Mm-hmm. And so that was a really interesting question to me, and it was something that I wanted to study. Um, unfortunately, at the time I was doing my PhD, there weren't a ton of programs that really had uh, a ton of work in that area, uh, you know, that was fully fleshed out. So instead, I ended up doing my research on what my uh, PI at the time, or my thesis advisor called at the time called the, you know, inverse question of what I was interested in. And what she wanted to know, and what I got really interested in was, how do we take a low dimensional intention in terms of movement? And so this would be, you know, to shake your hand if we were, you know, live together or to pick up this cup. And how do we actually map this onto the complex musculature of the body? And this is not a trivial uh, computation. In fact, in, you know, in, in our wonderful biological systems, we have more muscles and joints than we need to move into three-dimensional space. If I were a roboticist designing a being that could move in three dimensions and I had an arm or something, I would build two motors and two, uh, two arms so that I could get into three dimensions. If you think of motors as muscles, we have, you know, 70, 80 in the arm. Uh, and if you think of joints as, you know, individual arms, we have about 60 joints in the hand. So what it really means is anytime the nervous system has to make a decision to do something, it has an infinite number of combinations of muscles and joints that it can employ to get to the uh, goal. And that poses a tremendous computational problem on the nervous system because how does it choose to decide any one set of muscle patterns and joint motions over any other one? And how does it do so without shorting out the system the entire time? You know, how can we actually move kind of effortlessly in this environment that we walk around in? And so I was very interested in understanding complicated uh, muscle activation patterns and doing computational systems processing with respect to the nervous system. At the time, I thought I was going to be a neurorehabilitation uh, doctor, so like a PM&R, uh, you know, with a specific uh, neural focus and or, uh, or I should say and or, or a uh, neurologist. And when I was in medical school, I did those rotations and, you know, I, I liked them, but it didn't speak to me in the way that I felt myself doing this for 30, 40 years. Uh, as I went through my medical training, I found the operating room and the anesthesia teams on the other side of the curtain, and I really just loved what they were doing. They seemed like quintessential experimenters, you know, they're, the drugs, you know, really where they're, it's like a living lab. You can see the effects of drugs on patients immediately. You provide the anesthesia to patients. You render them unconscious. It's a great service to do for people that's, you know, in the grand scheme of how long we've existed as a society, very, very new concept. You know, this has been around for 170 years in our entire 70,000 years of existence. So, you know, these are things that were very compelling to me. And then the question became, what do I do with my research? And I realized I was in the business of taking complicated uh, signals, complicated physiologic signals, and putting them together to make constructs of what the nervous system is organized to produce. And so when I found myself at, you know, on the other edge of unconsciousness, I realized that, you know, monitoring brain activity and looking at, at neural activity in terms of both the neurons themselves and EEG, but also their blood flow um, and the other parameters that are available to me as an anesthesiologist would be a really, really uh, great uh, forum or, you know, a playing field for me to kind of continue what I, to do what I love and, and figure out how the nervous system works to do the everyday processes that we do. Wow. That's amazing. What a story. I love it. What, um, what instruments do you play? I started as a violinist uh, and then I went to uh, pit percussion. So like marimba, xylophone, uh, particularly mallet percussion. Nice. I'm also a violin player. Ah, nice. Um, okay. But now, okay. So I have to adjust because for the rest of this conversation, we're not going to be calling it POCD. We're going to be calling it PND, correct? We can call it POCD as the old entity, and I will just sort of because honestly, the literature itself is written on POCD, 
not on NCD. So to avoid confusion, I think it's probably a good idea to state what the literature states about POCD as we know it, with the caveats that the literature has a lot of overlapping definitions of POCD. And because of that, it's hard to trust the literature, even in terms of meta-analyses and you know more and and uh clinical metrics i think this is partly what i mean by saying you know i've got nothing but disappointment to give because uh a lot of i think the reasons why clinical studies either aren't taking foot uh, foothold or they're not working maybe in this overlap of definitions and in this uh high variability that we're seeing so we're working on that but i do think that for the purposes of this discussion it's fair to call pocd what it was and that with the idea okay. that we are moving toward a new entity. And then I'm going to ask the question that I think a ther other therapists would be asking if they were in on this conversation is when will that ICD-10 code be available for use? It should be available for use now. The, okay. the guidelines were established uh, in 2018. However, you know, a pandemic happened in between, so it's been difficult disseminating the information and kind of getting it off the off the ground. Uh, but because these ICD codes are based on, or sorry, because neurocognitive disorder is based on DSM-5 criteria, the ICD codes should be in place for that. And it would be the most up-to-date and the most accurate defining of the entity. Okay, got it. Okay, so I have my list of questions for you. So we'll just kind of All right. questions and we can bounce back or around, or if you want to talk about other things, we can do that too. Um, but I know like as in all medical research, it's really difficult to pinpoint why POCD occurs because there's just so many factors and this is always the challenge with medical research. But there's our individual bodies, the different surgeries, any underlying conditions or neurological conditions. But from your perspective, what have you learned about why POCD occurs? So, again, to kind of start from the literature as it is and the idea of POCD being a entity that is going out of fashion. I think what we have right now from two separate sets of data is kind of a who and a why, and they don't necessarily meet in the middle. So what I mean is in terms of the who, and again, thinking about this as POCD, we have a lot of who gets this entity from clinical association studies and from meta-analyses on these clinical association studies. These are largely retrospective, right? You don't put a prospective trial in to see who can get CO or POCD and all those sorts of things, right? So it's difficult to arrive at concrete conclusions from these data. But what we see from the data that are out there is that the most common risk factors are things like advanced age, a low level of education, and pre-existing cognitive impairment. And, you know, that kind of makes sense if you think about just the overall neural substrate that you have to start with before you get to an insult of anesthesia and surgery. However, if you look at the meta-analysis that put all these things together, we have up to 22 risk factors for why, uh, who can get POCD. And it includes things like the operating time. Okay, that makes sense. Things like female gender, maybe. Hyponatremia, hypokalemia, anemia hypoalbuminemia, and at some point, once you start adding more and more risk factors, you start losing its utility. You know, there's no clinical context in that. You know, if I'm looking for 22 red flags in any patient, it's not going to help me identify anybody over anybody else for having POCD. And so what I think, the way I put it together is these most common risk factors, the ones that show up over and over, are maybe reflective of overall neurocognitive frailty. And thinking of frailty, this would be defined as the lack of physiological reserve to withstand a physiologic stressor. And, the, and here, the physiologic stressor would mainly be the stress of anesthesia and surgery. And this frailty can develop over time from the cumulative effects of cellular and molecular damage in the setting of genetic and environmental factors. So let's say, you know, you have a patient who is uh, 75 years old 
you know, uh, just their, their overall aging, things that happen in aging. You have impairment of glucose uptake. You have alterations in your blood-brain barrier permeability. You don't clear toxins as efficiently. You don't have as well of an intact lymphatic system. You have damaged mitochondria from all the years of cumulative oxidative stress. So you've already, you know, aging has a lot uh, that, that is encompassed with it. In addition, a neurodegenerative disease would clearly, you know, render the the neurons that are functioning in a person uh, a lot less uh, useless, or sorry, a lot less useful, or a lot less able to withstand those physiological stressors. And then things like education and physical activity, you know, when people start, um, when people are drifting from their own cognitive baseline, having a high cognitive baseline and having a high amount of reserve can either you know, uh, mask these, uh, these sorts of cognitive problems, or just allow for a decrement in cognition to happen where it doesn't interfere with people's ADLs, IADLs, and social interactions. And so I think that thinking of things in frailty, uh, may be a better, uh, a better way for us to start to identify people at risk. The issue is frailty has many assessments on its own. It's also not standardized. So there's up to 70 different domains right now in the literature that you can you can assess frailty with, and there's no gold standard here. So we're still moving towards something that's better, but I like to think of it, you know, as the neuro the neurologically vulnerable patient. And who might that be? And that kind of helps me see where the risk factors that might be more useful will come out in ter- uh, as opposed to those that might be less useful. And so that's kind of the who, but it doesn't tell us why right? The why I think comes a lot from animal models and from preclinical studies. And these are very mechanistically based and they show much more promise in understanding the pathogenesis of neurocognitive disorder or POCD as we've been calling it before, which can aid in identification and treatment. And so, you know, for example, we think, and as you have mentioned before, that there is a neuroinflammatory component uh, to the development of POCD as an entity. And in this framework, essentially surgery Peripheral surgery, you know, or surgery at whatever peripheral site uh, causes local peripheral inflammation via pro-inflammatory cascades. So if I was operating on, you know, my radius because I fractured it and you're opening up the area, yes, there is local inflammation. There is going to be local uh, pro-inflammatory cascades. These cascades, and these, uh, which are instituted by cytokines, start to circulate in the blood. They start to become systemic. When they become systemic, and especially when they are circulating around the brain, they can cause the disruption of the blood-brain barrier, basically rendering those neurons potentially vulnerable to all of those cytokine cascades and whatever, you know, whatever else will come with it. So you know, ultimately, when these, when these cytokines move in the CNS and they cause their own sort of havoc, uh, they can uh, result in CNS inflammation. That causes neurons not to function. And ultimately, you could even have corresponding structural injury uh, of the neurons. And so a lot of studies in the animal literature uh, basically reflect to all of this at all points of the cascade. You know, we've seen peripheral inflammation causing POCD, this entity. We've seen it showing with central inflammation, with blood-brain barrier breakdown. All the steps along the process have been independently verified in uh, animal literature. However, they're done, you know, the ultimate thing is POCD, right? And so to diagnose a mouse or a rodent with POCD is a little bit, uh, you know, not so congruent, right? (laughs) Right, you know, it's kind of complicated. What are the rodent assessors of this? Well, they'll do a Y maze, for example, where a rodent picks one path versus the other and they test the memory. Or a water maze where a rodent will, there'll be a platform where a rodent can stand in a, basically in a pool of water like a shallow pool, and then they put the rodent somewhere else and make the rodent find their way back to that platform, right? Without, you know, any other cues as to where that is. They have to rely on their own spatial cues. What is this in human cognition? You know, when are we ever doing this and trying to find a shallower plat of water? And also a lot of these in rodents are fear motivated. So, you know, we don't know if these studies are even applicable in humans because it's all based on fear motivated uh, metrics of, of what we think is memory. So in the humans, it's kind of validated, probably for these reasons, and probably only partly validated for these reasons. But, you know, it's very complicated. And um, I think that's evidenced by the fact that our completed and ongoing clinical trials really don't show clinical efficacy yet in these data. And so together, what I think, and sorry for the long explanation, but together, what I think 
there's a double hit. You, one, have to have risk factors of pre-existing neurologic frailty. And two, you have to have some sort of cerebral metabolic stress, which happens around the operation, which independently and synergistically contribute to this PND development. And I think that's probably why, you know, certain surgeries, uh, certain people might be fine in certain surgeries and others may not, or why we can't find an association with level of surgery. Uh, and degree of impairment because everybody's different and this sort of, you know, this inflammation sets up in very different ways in every single person. In terms of neuroinflammation, this could be the functional dysregulation of neurons after surgery or during surgery and the time after. In terms of other hypotheses, we have things like neuroendocrine dysregulation that is believed to be uh, responsible for POCD. And what that really means is preventing neuronal glucose uptake. So if the neurons can't use glucose, they can't function because they have no substrate, again, metabolic substrate. And then lastly, the oxidative stress. If they have experienced too much oxidative stress, there can be functional silencing of neurons. And so the neurons just aren't firing because they don't have the appropriate metabolic substrate that they even need. And so all of these things combined together, you know, with the frailty basically can uh, result in some sort of clinical phenotype, and that clinical phenotype is highly variable. Wow. Okay. So there's all these different variables, all these different factors. It doesn't seem like there's a way to adequately predict, maybe, if someone is for sure going to be at risk for POCD. Is there is there anything that staff can do, like, I'm thinking like the staff that's working with the patient immediately after the operation. Is there anything that they can do to try the best they can to limit any number of those factors from contributing to the risk of developing POCD? Like I'm thinking like, what does the dietitian need to know? What does the nursing team to know? Do you treat it like a TBI where you have like a low stress environment, low light, or are there other things that we can be doing to reduce inflammation or like any of the, any of the factors that you were just talking about just now? Right. And then here's where I have nothing but disappointment to give you as well. Uh, <laughs> so I think in terms of, first of all, there are a few assumptions in answering your question. And I think the biggest assumption, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about later, is you have now already di either diagnosed or had high suspicion of X patient that they are going to have some cognitive uh, insults or some cognitive difficulties after uh, anesthesia. And now you're a therapist working on all those assumptions. They've already been identified. They already have, you know, red flags. It is now your turn uh, to see what you can do about the, about the situation. And I think that is a huge assumption. And I think really the onus, which I hope we talk about later, is comes back to the anesthesiologists and the people that are taking care of the patient in the perioperative setting. And we need to change our model to better help all of these patients. But in terms of, you know, what to do after this has already been, you know, deemed and, and validated and, you know, whatever, um, it's difficult. So um, I'm an MD. So I think pharmacologically first, you know, it's kind of where my basis is. Um, from the pharmacologic side, nothing has really seemed to work clinically. And I, you know, you kind of had that paper that uh, I had published a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and I went back and saw, you know, I, I did a, an update to see if anything had changed. And largely the answer is no, these clinical trials really haven't shown um, any efficacy on the pharmacologic uh, side. Now, that could in part be because of the way these studies are designed. For example, um, in terms of dexamethasone, lidocaine, and ketamine studies that I had mentioned in that paper, uh, a lot of them had been one intraoperative dose, which may not be enough to produce a clinical effect, you know, mm -hmm. so maybe the verdict's still out on those. Um, also, the story can be, as I said, kind of complex. And let me take um, dexamethasone as an example, right? Dexamethasone is a... Uh, is a steroid with glucocorticoid effects. So basically it's used for anti-inflammation. Uh, we use it a lot in, in um, neurological surgery. I'm a neuroanesthesiologist, so we use it to you know, prevent cerebral inflammation, which will obviously cause you know, cerebral derangements, especially also airway inflammation if we're working close to the airway or if we're doing spine cases. So you know, there is anti-inflammatory components to it. 
its activity is glucocorticoid only, meaning it's not going to produce mineralocorticoids and not going to raise your blood pressure. Um, it's not used for like stress dosing of steroids. Instead, it increases your uh, overall glucose level in your serum. And so to that end, it impairs glucose metabolism. So unless you're actively needing dexamethasone for peripheral inflammation, you know, uh, meaning like I, if my peripheral inflammation is the brain because I'm with a neurosurgeon, then it's probably not worth a potential risk because, you know, mitigating what we think is, you know, limb inflammation via dexamethasone may cause more harm because you are rendering the neurons unable to utilize their glucose stores. And so it's, it's a little bit, you know, tricky as to figure out what pharmacologic agent. Now, in terms of pharmacology, the only exception that I can find in literature is dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine is a notable exception in its ability to be somewhat protective for these cognitive um, events and declines uh, after anesthesia and sur surgery. Now, when I say protective for decline, what it's, the data are mainly based on postoperative delirium, which has a strong association with developing postoperative cognitive dysfunction. So mm -hmm. it's not apples and apples, you know, it's a little bit of apples and oranges, but there are a lot of data that basically says, say that dexmedetomidine decreases markers of peripheral inflammation um, in terms of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, in human studies, uh, dexmedetomidine might produce less blood-brain barrier breakdown than other anesthetic agents. Uh, also in human studies, if people are being sedated in the ICU, um, sedating them with dexmedetomidine has a clear advantage over other sedative agents in terms of neurocognitive burden. And lastly, at the neuronal level, dexmedetomidine creates an EEG signature that is very similar to stage two sleep. And this uh, type of sedation or anesthesia is associated with the lowest risk of postoperative neurocognitive disorders. So, you know, in terms of when dexmedetomidine can be a choice for a patient, I'm thinking of somebody who maybe needs to be rehabilitated, but it's still on some bit of sedation for either agitation or vent dysynchrony if they happen to have a tracheostomy tube in place or things like that. Dexmedetomidine would be a very fair choice and probably the best choice if you have to choose some sort of agent to uh, work for a, uh, for a sedative regimen for a patient. Uh, it does really, really well in those um, in those settings. Um, in terms of, you know, moving away from pharmacology, you know, it's hard. So the, I think the answer, or at least what we know for right now is maybe we just promote overall brain health instead of specifically reducing inflammation. And, you know, that can be done, really, it should be done from minute zero once we identify the patient. And that really is the purview of the anesthesiologist in the beginning. If they're going to undergo the stress of surgery, it is my job to carefully choose and titrate the anesthetic while monitoring their neurons so that I do as little damage as possible. Um, that is, you know, surprisingly in the anesthesia uh, I don't even want to say literature, but in our culture of anesthesia, uh, surprisingly, we don't monitor the brain as often as we really should. Um, even though our main effect organ is the brain, we are rendering patients unconscious every day. What we are really concerned about as anesthesiologists is the downstream effects that anesthesia has on our cardiopulmonary systems, mm -hmm. making sure the hemodynamics are okay, making sure, you know, they have a blood pressure, they have a pulse, they have oxygenation via their lungs. Um, and those things are obviously very important because they are critical to the, the survival of the patient at that very moment. But because there is so much to look at in that perspective, oftentimes the anesthesiologists don't think of the target organ, the brain, and what's happening there. And, you know, since this is my research, and obviously I do a lot of this, I have, uh, I have very vested interests in looking at the brain. And, and I, it is very surprising uh, when you look specifically at the brain, what the anesthetics are actually doing. And so that careful anesthetic choice, uh, there is still a lot of room to grow um, in educating anesthesiologists and, uh, you know, making this more part of our practice to assess the neurological uh, impact of our, of our anesthetics. Um, as far as it moving down to, uh, you know, therapists on the end, on the end of this uh, side of it, of things, uh, in terms of nursing, I would say the things that create postoperative delirium, again, because of the association studies of postoperative cognitive dysfunctions are things that you want to address and avoid if you can. So in terms of nursing in you know, the PACU or on the floor, 
um, ambient light, making sure there's appropriate, you know, windows in place um, so that, you know, a, a patient can withstand a circadian variation and be, you know, appropriately oriented to that. If you have a patient that uh, you are worried about uh, these outcomes much more so than, let's say, a 35-year-old healthy patient, I would put that patient that is uh, most worrisome by a window so that they have the circadian variation because they won't be able to have that reserve like a 35-year-old patient may have uh, in another uh, situation. Uh, minimizing polypharmacy, minimizing sleep disruptions, anything that really precipitate delirium in those first couple of days is also very helpful in uh, preventing the ensuing POCD. Uh, keeping them, something that is not very uh, uh, not thought of very often, is putting the patients in a... Um, basically setting them up so they can see the world in the plane that they always see the world in. Having a patient laying down and looking at the ceiling the entire time <laughs> puts them, you know, puts their plane of vision in something that is never or very rarely natural to them. And it can precipitate, you know, a lack of orientation, a lack of awareness, which then basically defines delirium, which is then possibly associated with POCD. In terms of dietitians. You know, there are data now, um, you know, and, I, and nothing has been validated in terms of POCD specifically, but there are a lot of data that are coming out on short chain fatty acids uh, being very uh, good for brain health. Um, overall uh, brain health, there are um, studies that have shown that uh, the brain uptakes these short chain fatty acids. So they do cross the blood brain barrier. Um, and they are believed to be responsible for maintaining blood-brain barrier integrity, um, as well as just neuronal membrane integrity. So, you know, the, the membranes of the axons themselves. Um, I believe there are some mice study that have shown that um, when you basically give antibiotics and get rid of uh, the natural biota of a gut um, in mice, that that um, in these in these animals they have reduced expression of tight junction proteins, increased blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, and, you know, things like antibiotics that do ship these gut biota um, have been shown to promote, an, uh, sorry, uh, pro-inflammatory states in, in mice. So I think that's something that we'll start to look out for a lot. Um, I think the, you know, it, it generates more questions and answers, you know, how, what, what short chain fatty acids, when do we give them? Do we do this, you know, um, from the very beginning, how do we deliver them in a patient that's not necessarily eating, uh, you know, a normal diet or, you know, can we generate a diet for these patients? Those are all questions that I'm really not sure that we know the answers to, but those would be the things that I think as the uh, field moves forward that we're going to start orienting ourselves to, keeping a patient well-oriented, well-engaged, um, trying to promote their overall brain health, whether that's after the fact or whether that's even in a prehabilitation cognitive um, program before they undergo surgery. And also during that intraoperative period, you know, having astute and uh, oriented anesthesiologists to take care of them. Wow, you are just a wealth of knowledge. And I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm I'm thinking to myself that I don't think that I have fully ever appreciated like the complex orchestration and art that is anesthesiology. Like, I don't think I, that ever, I don't think I've seen that before. It's a fun field. Yeah. <laughs> it's partly why I chose it. There's a lot to be I, done still. I get like, I think in my mind, I just thought like that there's like a chart and they look at the chart and they give the drugs, but that's not what happens. Like you, you're, you're customizing everything to each individual. I guess like in my perfect world, I like I, somebody commented on Instagram that they have a um, delirium team at their hospital, which is cool. Like, I don't know if that's a common thing, um, but it would be great to have if like if speech therapists could have communication and relationships with anesthesiologists when talking about neurological conditions and if there was a chance for the speech therapist or somebody to like give the mocha before an operation to have that data and to have a whole interdisciplinary team approach to managing neurological function before, during, and after a procedure. So is that kind of what you were getting at? Or do you, yeah. So you're, you know, basically <laughs> like, you know, begging the question, right? And this, 
And, you know, maybe this is kind of what I've been trying to say in, in a variety of different ways, but we need to change how we act as anesthesiologists because we are the first people to see these patients as they then get funneled to all of the rehabilitation uh, clinical staff. And I mean, when I say rehabilitation staff, I mean, that's anywhere from ICU nurses, floor nurses to speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, you know, the whole clinical team. And you're right, like we're tying your hands and we're putting you behind the eight ball because we've given you no information until they've already had surgery, they've already had the inflammation, they've already had everything. And then we say, okay, and now you have no drugs to use, go ahead and deal with it. It's no longer right. our problem, right? <laughs> I think this does stem from our history as I started to speak about it. And I think this outlines where we need to go. But our history and the way we work as anesthesiologists, you know, if you are coming to have surgery, you as a patient, you see the surgeon, you don't see the anesthesiologist, right? right. You see the surgeon, the surgeon decides, uh, you know, makes a plan with you, you agree, you consent to that plan, you decide to have surgery. You pay for the anesthesiologist as part of your whole clinical, you know, fee that comes to the hospital. And I actually have a lot of patients ask me, are you covered by my insurance? And I have to say, if the surgeon's covered by your insurance, I am because that's how we work. But it's weird because our hands are in, in essence tied because we don't know these patients until we see them, usually right. on the day of surgery. Yeah. As I said before, our anesthetic agents, and it's just you know, a really fun topic, but our anesthetic agents cause a lot of problems on other systems besides the brain, which we have to counteract as astute anesthesiologists. So we do look at patients' charts and we stratify them in terms of cardiac risk, pulmonary risk multi-system organ risk, except for neurological risk. And we do this by chart review before the patient ever gets to the door. Now, if there's a patient who, let's say, is a chronic heart failure patient and has a very poor functional status, um, as and, and most hospitals and most anesthesia teams have you know, some sort of um, entity where they look at these patients before they come in so that if you needed to order a test, like an EKG at minimum, or better yet, an echo or a cardiac catheterization, we can get that done so that when the patient arrives on day of surgery, we don't say, well, we never knew, we never saw this coming, you know, you can't have surgery today and we, we don't want to cancel surgeries. So we go through all these motions to get the patient optimized. Now, that is a paper optimization and that is a communication optimization that happens via the electronic medical record. When the patient actually comes in to have their surgery, then I step in five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If I'm lucky, an hour before a patient comes into the operating room and I say, here's my assessment of who you are based on your medical comorbidities and based on you know, the surgery itself and what we need. So here's my anesthetic plan for you. So what I'm going to do. Do you have any questions? that's when the questions are, you know, starting to be generated. Now, if I notice somebody is, uh, and, and I meaning, you know, a neuroanesthesiologist with training in EEG and vested interests in cognitive yeah. uh, decline after anesthesia, if I notice this in a patient, then I say, okay, well, here are my red flags for you neurocognitively, and this is how I'm going to change my anesthetic plan. But I realize I am in the far minority, and this is my whole life, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and any, you know, the, the nominal anesthesiologist is not going to be oriented that way, is not going to have the wealth information that I do, because they're not doing research on this every day. So instead, we're trying to move to this idea of a perioperative surgical home. And what this means is that in addition to identifying all of these uh, other systems that might be endangered during surgery and anesthesia, we, when the surgical uh, consent is delivered, we start to track that patient and we start to evaluate them for risk factors for cognitive uh, disturbances or derangements, you know, basically neurocognitive, um, uh, sorry, what's the, uh, the, new, the new definition, <laughs> uh, neurocognitive disorder after anesthesia. So at that time, if there are enough red flags based on association studies and based on essentially acumen from these hypothetic, uh, hypothesis-driven studies, we then mm -hmm. flag that patient for a baseline screening. And we also flag them for therapy before the surgery. So we start to give them a you know, cognitive training beforehand um, and potentially a prehabilitation, uh, whether it's even exercise that might help their overall functional status, which will ultimately help their cognitive status. We start to do these things before the patient even undergoes surgery. And that's yeah. where our field is starting to move so that hopefully in those patients that, you know, 
uh, are vulnerable, we a identify them before anything happens to them, before we do anything to them. We it then gives us a baseline measurement, which we can push to either ourselves or you and anybody mm-hmm. else in the clinical team. We then pay attention to them during their anesthetic and try to minimize any derangements as much as possible. That may influence our decision, uh, our choice of, let's say, sedative in the ICU if they still have to remain intubated. It may influence our choice of, you know, even something simple as where they're located in the ICU. Are they by a window? Do they have adequate lighting? And then we can hopefully be uh, better equipped to take care of these patients and do so in a certain multidisciplinary fashion. You know, that vulnerable patient is somebody that I'm going to not only manage my anesthetic and titrate that, but I might titrate my choice of pain medication for this patient, you know, Um, and, you know, do something that I think is less deranging to the neurons and a little bit more um, gentle to them to give them a fighting chance as they proceed through all the rest of their uh, uh, clinicians and all the rest of their clinical care. And ideally, in the last part of this is you and every other clinician would have access to all of this history and would have mm-hmm. all the data to know so that you can help make your own plan that takes all these things into consideration. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And even like getting... I mean, this might be too much of a stretch for most facilities, but getting social services, social work on board, because that's what I've seen where like somebody goes in for a surgery and then they have POCD, but they have no medical decision maker, no power of attorney there. They have no cognitive abilities to manage their real estate or their finances or their decisions. Um, But just having systems in place where it's like, hey, this is unlikely to happen, but in the event that it does, let's get some, at least some names in place or some semblance of a plan in place of what we should do if you do. And the idea from these programs too, you know, and and right now, um, you know, we're on the way. Right now, what we have is uh, ERAS protocols. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but that's stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocols. I believe it was initially done in colorectal surgery, and the idea was using empirical evidence to advocate for, let's say, a checklist of things that would be good for a patient. And I believe the things that are in this colorectal ERAS is like minimizing fluids in the beginning of a surgery and then, uh, or sorry, um, minimizing fluids at the end of the surgery to prevent an anastomotic site from, you know, uh, tearing apart or something like that to prevent basically edema. In addition, multimodal pain management to avoid opiates because we don't want to deal with ileus in a patient who's uh, post-colorectal surgery. And so we kind of come up with a package of guidelines that we can then easily apply to a patient. And it started like that. And now we're kind of doing this with a bunch of different entities. The Where we are in this process that I'm describing is a brain ERAS protocol, where if somebody is in, you know, that you have concern about neurocognitively, we can say, okay, we're going to target light anesthesia. We're going to, you know, do appropriate pain management. And one of those things is actually getting the family um, on board and talking to the family beforehand in terms of their expectations for the patient, as well as you know, um, in in terms of what they can do to help the patient and be rehabilitated. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately we move, I think we move from brain ERAS to the perioperative home. That takes evidence. Right now there are a few clinical trials that are implementing this brain ERAS in terms of, um, does it reduce these, you know, entities? Does it reduce uh, perioperative neurocognitive disorder or POCD or POD? And I think once we have those data, we can then advocate for a much larger overhaul of our, uh, field and start to identify these patients and basically, you know, give everybody the data that we all need on these patients. Right. Right. Amazing. Do you want to talk about um, some like the non-traditional pharmaceutical treatments like cannabis, melatonin, turmeric, and acupuncture? Um, I think the short answer to that question is nothing has been really shown to have an effect and there are reasons why. So I'm happy to give you a little blurb if you want uh, for me to be somewhat succinct about it. Okay. Or not. You can be succinct. No, it's fine. Either way. Um, So in terms of some of the non-traditional treatments, including melatonin, uh, turmeric, acupuncture, and cannabis, I think that none of them have really been shown to have any clinical effect. 
Again, that kind of goes, it could partly be owed to the problems that we have in the entity of POCD and in the clinical trials that are designed for it. But essentially in terms of melatonin, there are few clinical trials and there's a lot of heterogeneity in the doses that are given in melatonin. And this presents a problem because then you don't really know how to treat someone or what dose to choose and give. Um, It's partly because melatonin has a large efficacy profile and uh, you know, it's fairly safe. So it's, it's large safety profile, but um, unfortunately I think that it was to variability and that means it's harder to establish a direct link in terms of turmeric. You know, there are, there is the idea that um, curcumin, a, a compound in turmeric has is an antioxidant. And so therefore mm-hmm. in the neuroinflammatory hypothesis, any antioxidant or any sort of, compound with antioxidant properties should or could have a clinical effect. There are no clinical trials right now on the use of turmeric uh, in uh, POCD presently. So while I don't think it's a bad idea, and especially if somebody wants to use turmeric, you know, like I would fully advocate for things like that. There's a large safety profile for that too. Uh, It's not as if there are clinical data to establish that. In terms of cannabis, also no clinical trials, but this is potentially more of an FDA issue. So it's very hard to do research on something that is not regulated at the federal level. Some states are sort of able to do it, but a lot of the funding that we get for these studies are done by the NIH and it's federal dollars and no federal dollars can be used to actively explore cannabis. Um, Even on synthetic cannabinoids and um, even on manufacturing of endogenous cannabinoids, there are lots of regulations with that, and the FDA doesn't necessarily allow that right now. I think that's going to change, obviously, as our landscape is changing, but currently that's what I have. And then, you know, acupuncture, again, a really difficult thing to weigh in on. Um, there, It's hard to know. There are clinical trials that have shown some sort of reduction um, in a variety of different metrics, but the problem is with acupuncture, there's a lot of opacity to this. Uh, mainly acupuncture studies are done in China, uh, which have limited clinical reports. So it's hard to ascertain and really figure out all of the, uh, different aspects of people's population, uh, or even demographics and like, and their clinical courses. Uh, a lot of the original articles are reported in non-English studies. So even there from the funneling down, you know, it's hard to even know what to ask for. And what we're getting is often secondhand, thirdhand. Um, there's training in acupuncture, which is not consistent among provider and that inconsistency in training is both at the provider level, but also in the institutional level. And I'm thinking of like a Chinese training in acupuncture is very different than, you know, a training acupuncture center in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and, and things like that. So it's, it's hard to uh, compare them directly. Great. Um, Is it, are there anything, is there anything in your notes that you definitely want to talk about? I was going to jump to. Let's see. What were you going to jump to? Well, I was going to share this story. I mean, I have a lot of people reach out to me and I'm sure like, I'm sure you get approached with stories all the time about sedation experiences, right? Yes. <laughs> Either yes. of selves yes. or loved ones. And I think like the POCD concept or term or diagnosis or whatever like I think that's filled in the gaps for some people of like oh like that's what happened to my dad or whoever it was but there was one story that um, somebody told me about when I said I was going to talk to you for this podcast where their dad went in for an elective surgery and as they, as he was coming out of sedation, there were some cognitive issues and then also some agitation. And so he was resedated and he continued to be resedated for weeks to control this. And the reasoning given to the family was that he was detoxing from alcohol, even though he wasn't really a drinker and like the family had no experience of him having any kind of alcohol use or abuse or anything like that. Hmm. I guess I don't really know what my question is other than maybe it speaks to the need for what you're talking about as far as this more interdisciplinary approach and checklists and, and neurological monitoring and like everybody being on the same page about that, because 
it just sometimes it seems like there are those missing links between like what the family is experiencing, what the patient is experiencing and what the anesthesiologist is seeing, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I think I read that um, anecdotal account on the um, Instagram page or whatever link you had sent to me. And, you know, I found it unfortunately not uncommon, you know, of a scenario that I've seen. And, you know, in terms of, I think this kind of speaks to what we're talking about, you know, this entire time is we need to do a better job of identifying the vulnerable patient for them, you know, so that we can do something about it for them and also establish a baseline for them. But we also need to tell the family what to expect. And, you know, I mean, it's, it seems to be sort of circular, but it's the same idea as to how anesthesiologists work. If you're not expecting anything to be told, and, and, you know, we don't say as a field, and it's not well known that this is a potential complication, especially if you're an older individual, that you may not have the same cognitive you know, function and status as you did when you were going in, if, if, um, for whatever reason, you know, and that's, and that's hard to, um, to put into context and we're not doing that a great job ourselves. And then imagine telling that to somebody minutes before they go (laughs) under anesthesia and, you know, the family and, you know, sometimes, you know, if I'm really worried about a patient, you know, I will, I will have a discussion with the family and say, look, here are the possible outcomes. I'm going to try my best, but here's what you can potentially expect. And I do feel like that education alone uh, at least helps families be a little bit more aware of things, you know, that, that could happen and what to do. But again, it starts that whole conversation. If that's documented in the chart and I've started my process, then I can hand it off to you and say, this is what I did to this, for this patient because I was worried about their neurocognitive status. You yeah. know, here are the agents that I gave. Here's what I recommend. And yes, it may still not uh, be foolproof because we still don't know a lot about it, but we can at least start addressing the problem. And, you know, surprisingly to me, a lot of patients don't, uh, see this or know that this is a potential problem. I think a lot of the fear is on being awake during anesthesia. And, uh, you know, there's legitimate reasons for having that fear. It would be an awful uh, experience to have. I think that in the day and age of our more modern anesthetic agents, first of all, without brain monitoring, this phenomenon is immensely reduced. You know, I think it's like one in every 300,000 or less that, w- that are affected by this. But also, now that we're in the era of monitoring brain activity, if we just simply do that, we'll even better know if a patient is, you know, not aware or, or, you know, that they're not aware during anesthesia, but we'll also know what the integrity of their neurons is. And that will be, I hope, where we continue to move as a field. Wow. Okay. So I guess my last question for you in this conversation, and maybe we'll have more, (laughs) but what would you what would you say to speech occupational and physical therapists who are listening to this who maybe work in acute care or um like inpatient rehab and they're interested in having an interdisciplinary conversation about shifting more towards that approach what advice would you have for them as far as building a relationship with the anesthesiologists in their facilities or building that interdisciplinary rapport and workflow? I think first I would thank them (laughs) for the difficult work um, that it is that, you know, therapists do. Um, It is, I'm sure a thankless job on many uh, occasions, but um, there's a lot that you have to deal with. And a lot of it is, put onto your plates by people like, you know, us that just sort of give you the patient post-operatively and say, okay, here, it's your, it's your entity, not ours. Um, so first of all, a thank you. And like a, a full acknowledgement that what you do is quite hard. Um, I think the, the way this is going to move forward is, is going to start with these ERAS protocols. The ERAS protocols that have been developed, at least in the non-cognitive domain, so, you know, uh, colorectal surgery, orthopedic surgery even has some ERAS protocols. There are some for ambulatory surgery, and I think a lot of institutions have them. 
Uh, the, I think the way to sort of, you know, edge yourself in is by looking if there's a brain ERAS protocol uh, in the institution. And since ERAS protocols are, uh, in general, I think, well um, promoted by institutions because they are based on outcomes, instituting a brain ERAS protocol or tacking on to a brain ERAS protocol and trying to uh, standardize an intervention that you are doing for a, a specific patient will be sort of the way to have those conversations. Then by finding out who's in charge of the ERAS protocols, it sort of necessitates uh, a discussion among the clinicians who made that, you know, anesthesiologists, surgeons, uh, any other medical personnel that, you know, were in that, uh, in that thought uh, experiment in the beginning of the whole thing. And mm -hmm. once you, once we can get to ERAS protocols that can be a standardized, they will hopefully show outcomes data, which then basically forces our hand into changing how we view these patients and starting a preoperative component, changing that perioperative home. But I think, you know, that's the low level work that needs to be done. And honestly, by getting in on the ground floor as a therapist with these other clinicians that are making these decisions puts, you know, your, your concerns also uh, at the forefront of the patient's care. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. It was so nice meeting you. Wow. I just want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Safavinia for his time and for sharing his expertise with us. You can find a link or find links to his publications in our show notes at therapyinsights.com. And you'll definitely want to check out his 2022 paper called Mitigation of Perioperative Neurocognitive Disorders, A Holistic Approach, which not only contains the latest information on the topic, but is also just a really fascinating read. And also be sure to get the free PDF download associated with this episode on our website. And last but not least, if you found this episode useful, please give us a five-star review and share this episode with your therapy friends and colleagues. See you next time.